Welcome to Raising Standards with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith, a true Roman history podcast for true Romans. Hail Caesar. Welcome to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast in which we take a fond look at HBO's Rome. I'm Rhiannon Evans. And I'm Matt Smith. In this episode, we'll be taking a look at Season 1, Episode 6, Egeria. It's written by John Milius and Bruno Heller and directed by Alan Poole. In this episode of Rome, Mark Antony considers throwing in with Pompey before he packs up his bags, follows Caesar and leaves Rome. Varinus rekindles his romance with his wife Niobe before he packs up his bags, picks up his standard and leaves Rome. Octavian becomes a real man before he puts on his toga, packs up his bag and, well, leaves Rome. Hello there, Rhiannon. How are you going? Hi, Matt. I'm fine. Before we talk about this episode of Rome, I thought I'd quickly touch back on something that we talked about last episode. Do you remember we were talking about the the, the presence of India in Rome in that episode? Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been catching up on I, Claudius, and it's Livia's birthday, and Claudius rocks up with a vase from India. So there you go. If Robert Graves says it's fine, then I'm fine with it too. Well, have you checked the novel, though? Does Robert Graves say it's fine, or is that the BBC production? (laughs) No, it's fine. I'm sure you're right. And we do know there was trade. So I like to think that the last episode, therefore, was an homage, (laughs) a homage to I, Claudius, (laughs) putting in a person instead of an object. (laughs) Well, it does have some of the same characters as well. So there you go. You can just call Mm. this all a big prequel to I, Claudius. Yeah. I like that you're catching up with I, Claudius, 44 years on. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, I had to at some point, I'm sure. Otherwise, I would have had to rescind my uh, Rome enthusiast credentials. Uh, So let's talk about this episode, uh, Egeria. Egeria, how are you pronouncing that? I'm saying Egeria. That's the way it's normally pronounced. Soft G. We'll talk about who she... she, She's... Yeah, it's true. The Romans would not have had a soft G, and I'd be telling my Latin students off. Mm. Mm. Um, but she, we'll talk about, she's a, she's a character from Roman mythology. So, How about we just um, wade into that right now? Because there's not a okay. huge amount of relevance to the episode other than there's a character with that name. So I think it's fine well, to kind know. of, oh, okay. I don't know. All right. We will table that discussion then. <laughs> yeah. So what did you think of this episode? It was a lot quieter, a lot calmer. There's a lot of character development in this there's a fair bit of sex and violence, so I'm not sure I'd go for karma exactly. I thought it was quite a relevant episode to watch while we're in 5K lockdown because it didn't go very far, did it? Caesar is way out elsewhere, but we did not go there except by report. It stayed mm. within Rome, is what I'm saying. Yeah. In a very roundabout way. Yeah, it, it pretty much kept the action with um, there's stuff going on with Octavian, there's a lot going on with Mark Antony, and there's a kind of. Uh, stuff going on with Varinus. Varinus and his family are kind of taking a, a calm breath before in episodes ahead it all just goes to chaos. It was very household based so mm. it was about relationships because even there's obviously there are links throughout the series but they became more obvious I guess in this episode between Mark Antony who's on the face of it a public figure is kind of pushed in this version of events into Octavian's family life because of his affair with Attia, which only happens in the series, of course. So we've got that link there. And and so I guess we see him very much in private mode mm. um, in this episode. 
And even though he has to make some big decisions, the decision is eventually made in a in a private setting, isn't it? Mm. Um, when he's with Atia. So yeah, it was very householdy, family based. This episode. Um, maybe there's a downside to knowing the history that lies behind it because I I was hoping to see some of those big scale battles. I don't say that often. I'm not really that interested <laughs> in battles, but I I was sort of curious as to what they do with it, the first battles of the the civil war and this this clash between Caesar and the Pompeians. And as we'll see, uh, we'll go into it maybe a little bit more. Caesar was moving around a lot during this period, mm. um, and all we get is a letter from him <laughs> and a call for backup at a later point. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All right. So let's talk about what we do get then. Uh, the episode essentially opens with Mark Antony pushing Caesar's agenda with the Senate and essentially manipulating and moulding the Senate to come out with. Caesar's decrees and give them some legitimacy. Not that I think it's needed, but I think it would be nice. Yeah, uh, it does show him as uh, sort of a bit of a, I think I would call him a dangerous smoothie. Isn't he? <laughs> he's, sort of, he's very good at doing those two levels. We often get this with baddies, but I actually think James Purfoy is, is much better at it than, than we often see, of it being very clear that he's saying something that might seem very flattering, but there's definitely a, a dangerous undertone to that. If you don't do it, you'll be in trouble. Mm. And sometimes he breaks out into violence, but often he doesn't need to because it's understood you'd better do what he says. Uh, and that's very clear from that early scene with um, the, the guy that he apparently makes consul in that scene, Publius Servilius, played by Simon Callow. Mm where he's smooth talking him and his wife. His wife knows what's going on. Oh, his wife is you, know, you, exact... can, you can see her skin crawling. <laughs> yeah, you can. You can see the disdain. You know, he's flattering her. Um, nothing he says on the surface is correct. Oh, and this must be your beautiful wife whose name escapes me. Papaya. A flower. This scene is is a bit of a a mishmash of history. Okay, so Publius Servilius was consul in 48, along with Caesar. This scene makes it look like Mark Antony just declares that there. All right, but there would have been at least the appearance of some normality, even at this stage. All right, so Mark Antony doesn't declare who is consul partway through the year, apparently. This makes it look very ad hoc. Also, and I know you might accuse me of pedantry here, and I, I admit even from the opening <laughs> really? that I'm being pedantic, <laughs> but Servius, uh, Publius Servilius was married to, you will find this interesting, honestly, <laughs> to Brutus's half-sister, ah, Junia okay. Prima. Yeah. So a daughter of Servilia from Servilia's second marriage. Yeah, so sure. Brutus, yeah. who we, did, we didn't see in this episode, but we've seen him before, mm -hmm. Sort of youngish man, I don't know, played by someone maybe in his 30s. Yeah. He's from Servilia's first marriage. Okay. All right. Junior Prima is from the second marriage, so must be younger. Okay. But and the woman who's bit, playing yeah. her, yeah, doesn't look that much younger than Servilia, does she? So, mm. you know, 
they've done something quite different with uh, that couple here. They've gone for an older woman and Mark Antony flatters her anyway. Yeah. And you can see, I mean, you can see from Mark Antony's usual choices, she's not his type. So he's just been completely disingenuous and she knows that. I mean, when you're talking about uh, Roman so- society and marriages, you could legitimately have Simon Callow fronting up with a 15-year-old as his wife and that would have been par for the course. Yeah. Well, we've seen that Varenus's daughter is getting married, as we would think of it. I mean, she's a child in our terms. Yeah, she? but to somebody age-appropriate. To... <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. And I can't remember because it was right at the beginning of the series. But, of course, Pompey was married to Caesar's daughter, and she, the poor actor who plays uh, Julia, doesn't get to do much except die in childbirth. Mm-hmm. That's how we started out. But she was considerably younger because Pompey was older than Caesar. So Pompey was older than Julia's dad. Yes. That age disparity, quite normal in marriages. Yeah, Mm. you're right. But obviously they were setting that up to give us a particular view of Antony. Mm -hmm. I've been very long-winded about this, but I think that's the point of it. It doesn't reflect the reality of um, Publius Servilius's marriage. Also, Servilius, he is depicted in that scene as kind of turning on the spot from Pompey's side from the optimates, the best men, to Caesar as a kind of uh, judicious policy because because all of the senators have gone now and he hasn't got out. That's kind of the implication, isn't it? In order to survive, he has to turn to Caesar's side and Antony. And it's true that Servilius had defected from the optimates and some historians will write of him as Caesar's puppet, but he had actually had a, a kind of lifelong friendship with Caesar. Yeah. So like a lot of senators... It was probably quite hard for them to decide, you know, Cicero is desperately trying to make sure there aren't sides, but once Mm. there are, which do they choose? They might well have personal relationships with Caesar and his family. Their political outlook, if we can think of it like that, might align more with the optimates or the other way around. Yeah, just their ideals. Yeah, very difficult for them. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's essentially Brutus's storyline as well. Exactly. So what did you think of uh, Mark Antony lounging around and remodeling Pompey's villa. <laughs> I love that. And then we don't have any sources that say that. I think it fits with the way his character's being depicted here. And I should have replayed it, but there was some there was some repainting going on that involved gladiators, wasn't there? So he was covering over the presumably tasteful artwork. Yes, he was. And he yeah. was having it redone yeah, with yeah. a gladiatorial battle. Yes. Which yeah. is not particularly typical of wall painting in ancient Rome. And I'm quite surprised they didn't go for an erotic scene, given his character. Maybe they thought that would be overplaying it. I mean, those are very typical of of, uh, domestic wall paintings, so they could legitimately have done that. Maybe they're stressing the violence, having him... uh, And, of course, we do get that crossover of violence and eroticism with Antony in this episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Um, we'll we'll get to that later. (laughs) The other part of this scene is... Mark Antony specifically bringing up the ideas that Caesar wants to push through. So one third labouring with cattle or in agriculture must be freedmen. And uh, this is something that's going to anger the large estate holders. Yeah, I think he says freedmen or citizens even. Anyway, mm. not slaves. Is not the slaves, point. yes. All right, because it's a very modern take on what was actually going on. It's kind of a, it plays to, and it's actually, even though this was made over a decade ago, it seems very topical now. This idea that we have to bring the jobs home to our 
our people. <laughs> all right, and let's not let the slaves take our jobs away from us, mm. which is not, it's, it's a very difficult attitude to slot into ancient Rome, I think. I mean, they have to do this. They can't really go into a lecture on um, Roman society and economic change. But for decades, even uh, over a century, this had been an issue that's that's bubbling under in that the rich, largely the senatorial class, are buying up more and more land, so you've got this landless poor who then, you know, either have nothing to do or have to go find work. And they then make these huge estates, huge farming estates called latifundia. That's the senators. And they populate them with slaves to work the land. So it sort of reflects something of the truth that this was becoming an issue, mm -hmm. that free people or freed slaves might find difficulty um, finding sustenance. Um, hence, you have things like the, the corn dole, the grain dole. Um, but it, it's sort of putting it slightly in anachronistic modern terms for the modern audience to understand, I think. I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but it's just not quite the way that Roman society worked. Yeah, yeah. And where was it on Caesar's priority, especially at that time? Is it something that he was worried well, about? There is an aspect of this that he's engaging with, which the populares, those who drew their power from the people, mm. had been trying to grapple with for quite a few decades, which is redistribution of land. So it's not so much about jobs. Jobs make sense to us. That's what government is, is seen as either doing or maybe not doing anything about. For Rome, it's all about land. And mm. he wants land taken or basically taken away from some of those um, the, of the senatorial class and redistributed to the landless poor, to his veterans. He's already done it for Pompey's veterans, in fact. So mm. Pompey has also been engaging with this. But yeah, it's all about that redistribution of land, which is a big reason that the civil war happens at all, that the senatorial class is, wants to stand out against Caesar because he might do this. He might take some of their land from them. So, so they've got a lot to lose. Mm, mm. But so Publius Servilius, I think he kind of catches on to why this is a bad deal for most of the Senate. This is going to be a hard thing to sell. But he's also attracted yeah. in this scene by the carrot of being consul. Yeah, absolutely. Once you're in control, you can then offer things like that. You can offer magistracies, which mm. is not the way the Roman Republic's meant to work. I might add, it's a little bit of a sidebar, the senatorial bunch, who we don't see at all in this episode, so Pompey and his allies, are continuing with the um, consuls that they had set up for, certainly for 49, mm -hmm. and then they just extend them to 48. All right, so they see themselves as the Roman government, the Roman Senate in exile. Yeah. And Pompey kind of brings in a special policy to say, we don't have to be in Rome. We are Rome. Wherever we are is the Senate. So in effect, we've got, two governments going on. The one that Caesar's imposing yeah. in Rome and the one that sees itself as the government in exile. I know we don't see any of that in this episode, so maybe it's not relevant, but just as a bit of background, this is not the only government going on that, that claims to be in charge of Rome at this point. Oh, Although that's... obviously Pompey has a lot less power as he's not in Rome. <laughs> That's, um, that's better than my off-topic uh, fact, which is I couldn't get past... Uh, I've, I've seen Simon Callow in Doctor Who. He played Charles Dickens. I don't know how familiar you well, are with Doctor Who, but there you go. <laughs> yeah, I have seen him play that character. I've seen him say, play so many characters. Mm -hmm. um, and he's often very bombastic. And he kind of doesn't get... not. I don't know if Simon Callow is, but that's the kind of character he quite often plays. And he's sort of 
quite famous for that. So this is a little bit against type. Yeah. Although maybe you get the feeling he would be if he had the chance. It's just Antony is the one with the power here. Well, this is the only episode that he appears in of this. So it's kind of, you know, ah, oh, he's a, gr- a shame. he's a great actor. He could have been, you know, quite good in this. But, you know, how many more white British dudes do you need in this show? <laughs> well, there is that. Yeah. So Verenus and Pullo are, are watching all of this go ahead with um, Simon Callow and Mark Antony. And Verenus does not seem impressed at all and kind of is hating this new job that he's taken up. As he's leaving, uh, he mentions that Mark Antony doesn't measure up to Cincinnatus, Marius, or the Gracchi, which is just kind of like a, a who's who of the economic and social reformers for the past. Well, there's whatever. a roll call of, of military heroes as well with Kinkinatus and Marius in particular. Mm. But you're right, yeah, the Gracchi are both murdered for doing exactly those policies we were talking about, trying to bring in land reform in particular. Marius reformed the army to make it more efficient and, and, you know, was highly successful against the Gauls and then not so successful in civil war. But Kinkinatus was known for, he gets that name for delaying strategically and then fighting and then going back to farming. Yeah. So, you know, just giving up his power. So acting kind of in a highly moral way and staying true to... Uh, their principles. Although it's kind of ironic that he mentions Marius and the Gracchi because they're definitely on the popularist side and Varenus mm. is supposed to be a Catonian. So I'm not sure that they would be his poster boys exactly. Wouldn't have a poster up when he's a teenager on the on the wall of his mm. domus. I think he's more likely to have Sulla <laughs> oh, okay. than Marius. I mean, Marius is uh, Caesar's uncle and uh, they're pretty much along the same lines politically mm. you can talk about it like that paulo would have had a sexy gladiator gladiatrix either way either <laughs> way i'm sure all right so let's shuffle the episode along slightly uh, to the spiraling dramas of the Verenus family so this is a slight bit of breathing room for them if i can put it that way because uh spoiler alert if we go to the end of the episode Verenus is leaving rome again so this kind of catches him up with his wife and puts them on a better footing than they've been in any of the previous episodes, I suppose, and gives them a chance to reset before it tears everything apart, which is nice, I guess. It so. does. It doesn't start very well. He's still being rejected, but he manages oh, yes. to and patch he, it up. Well, they both yeah. they both make an effort, I guess you could say. Mm, mm. That's right. He goes on a drinking binge first with Paulo and has a cry into a beer glass, essentially, about his relationship. And, I mean, look, who hasn't done that at some point in uh, their relationship? I haven't. <laughs> Just me? <laughs> okay. <laughs> I, no, look, I've got many fond memories of going out with my friend Matt or my other friend Matt, and I do have friends with different names, but that is accurate. <laughs> and uh, drinking and commiserating about whatever state my relationship is currently in. Yeah, look, it rang home. <laughs> I st- and I don't know whether your friends are as inappropriate as Polo to do that with, but Polo always seems to give terrible advice. And of course, we know in the background that Polo is kind of the cause of all of this. Well, well not the cause of l- the, the, l- the break in their relationship, but l- yeah. Let me just say that accurately, Matt gives great advice, but Matt gives terrible advice. And if okay. either of them are listening to this, they know exactly which one of them I'm talking about. <laughs> is it a generational thing that all your friends are called Matt? <laughs> <laughs> it is not just me crying into a mirror. That's fine. So, okay. <laughs> Good to know. 
I mean, Polo, of course, has is responsible for the death of Evander, who is the the Niobe's. God, I've forgotten her name. Niobe's, who is uh, Niobe, piece on the Niobe's side. brother-in-law? Mm. Yeah, and brother-in-law and lover and father of the the little boy. This is why um, Niobe's sister Lide is staying with them, and this has caused further tension. So there is a lot of soap opera in this episode, mm. um, and I know we've had a bit of that bubbling along, and and it's sort of good to get some personal lives of the non-elites in this series. But I think this episode is one where we see it more than in previous ones. Maybe they're tr- trying to get a lot of that in before Varanus has to leave. Yes. And therefore, they're going to be separated for a while. Mm. You also get that scene, I guess, in this episode where Pulo sits down with Lydie and, you know, gives a lot of pointed looks to Niobe and tells him, look, uh, Evander's dead. I heard that he had a run-in with some Greeks from across the river, I think is how he put it, uh, over some gambling mm-hmm. debts. Oh, those foreigners. Mm. Time to move on, <laughs> Niobe. Time to move on, Niobe. You hearing me? And then he walks out. Mm. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I don't want him to ever break any bad news to me. I mean, I know he's got an ulterior motive for how he's doing this, he, but it, his whole attitude is, and I think they play it and, you know, he's a very good actor, um, but they play it as he is the bluff soldier. Mm. It's like they're dead. It's a, he's dead in this case. It's over. Mm. Let's get on with life. He's such a so dangerous guy, attitude. but I can't help but liking him. He's just so, he's well, so, I think that, yeah, I, exactly what the the series wants well, and they, they're quite successful in it I, I think every character actually you could put that down to you know you should not like mark antony but you can't help but like mark antony but geez he's terrible as well uh mm. perhaps more so than pullo but you know pullo killed a guy in the last episode and we'll <laughs> uh i'm sure there's websites out there that keep track of the death count you know how much we can attribute to pullo how much we can attribute to mark antony oh, don't say that i feel yeah. like i should be then mm. Oh, there's a segment idea for you. I think we'd need a column for domestic violence as well after this episode because it's two episodes in a row we get a woman being hit. Mm. So let's talk about Octavian going to the brothel. Yeah. My favourite bit of this is Artia kind of forcing this onto Octavian, that he needs to lose his virginity. And just the relationship they have where it's... He always looks like he wants to say, Mom, shut up. (laughs) And he sometimes does say that, basically, that she just constantly embarrasses him with her openness, with her kind of, as he sees it, as inappropriateness. Mm. And, you know, he seems much more kind of, he is very contained, isn't he? And and quite uh, sort of straight-laced by comparison. Octavian, have you penetrated anyone Mother, please. Does that mean you have or you haven't? So Pullo's uh, taking on the role as a pimp in these scenes, kind of. Uh, Artia tells him, none of your sordid soldier she-wolves, which is a, a line that I kind of liked. <laughs> yeah, and that's to do with the fact that the word lupa is uh, Latin and Italian for wolf, but it's also slang for a sex worker. Ah, that's right, yeah. So how accurate was the brothel experience? And I gather that there's a sliding scale of nice brothels to essentially a hole in the wall with a curtain and that this is at the nice end of the experience we're led to believe apparently so it makes sense that there would be different prices we know that there are different prices uh, from evidence in Pompeii we don't really have descriptions that I know of of people visiting the brothel sometimes something they tend to keep 
private, mm -hmm. although it's not illegal at all in uh, Roman society and sex workers pay taxes. So they're, they're kind of part of the system. They're not underground by any means. Um, and also it's not particularly shameful for Roman men. It'd be much more shameful to be having sex with a respectably married woman as some of our major characters are indeed. Mm. This might well be the way that uh, a noble boy gets his first experience. If we might dispense with the pecuniary details. <clears throat> oh, right. What's your price then? One thousand. Gerai! I could have half the whores in Narbo for that and their mothers. We're not in Narbo, whatever that might be. This is definitely an upmarket one, um, and it's not surprising that Polo is is shocked by the price. The brothel keeper says it's a thousand. She doesn't specify. the The lower end of it could be a thousand sesterti, which would which has been worked out at around five thousand US dollars. Mm. If it's denarii, you can times that by four. Okay, that's a lot of money. <laughs> Just as background to this, within the series, Artia is clearly spending beyond her means. This is another occasion for that. She just spends like there is no tomorrow. And she's clearly of the opinion that you've got to appear wealthy rather than necessarily being uh, wealthy. Mm. It's interesting that Octavian, when he's offered a kind of array of sex workers, just as soon as um, the, the brothel keeper gets to the boys, the young men, he just says, I'll take her. He has no interest in them, which is not the impression we get from Suetonius. <laughs> it's very hard to to know exactly what would have occurred, but um, Octavian is at an age where he is... You see him at the beginning of the episode, I don't know if you remembered, he was wearing this sort of necklace with the round... Um, it's called a bulla, mm. like a medallion. That's a symbol of childhood for a boy, and it's meant to be protective. Oh, okay. That means he is a respectable boy, yeah. um, and that he hasn't gone through that ceremony which is not this ceremony there is a ceremony of going into the toga of manhood the toga virilis um and shaving your first beard and keeping the clippings and then you remove the buller all right you don't need that protective device anymore because you've become a man so he's not yet at that stage so i guess in um same-sex relationships he might be seen in rome in the vulnerable category Right, he's vulnerable to the predations of men, is how they'd see it. Mm. Only because he's an elite boy. If he were a slave boy, they wouldn't care. I don't think any of that is really going on here. I think what's going on here is that they're characterising Octavian as straight. I think it's as simple as that. <laughs> Very much in our terms, not in Roman terms. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the prostitute that he selects is named Egeria, which is where we get the title of this episode from. Uh, so what's the significance of that name? Okay, so she's buried deep in Roman mythology as the um, wife, but not human. She's a nymph of the second king of Rome, Numa, Numa Pompilius, mm. who was a Sabine and known for being kind of morally upright and instilling all of these religious and secular codes um, so he, he, he is supposed to have brought in a lot of the priesthoods and magistries and rituals and fixed the Roman calendar. We're always seeing that calendar, mm. right? Numa's meant to have been responsible for that. Um, and there is a shrine to Egeria um, at one of the gates of, of Rome. She's a water nymph, so there's a spring and the waters of this spring are dedicated to only the use of the vestals. So there's a kind of 
suggestion of purity about Egeria, I suppose. But importantly, she's meant to have been, well, Numa himself is meant to have been very wise, but Egeria, his wife, is meant to have advised him to have been this kind of support and uh, counsellor to him. Right. I guess she's sort of a guide. And you could see Egeria in this episode as a guide to Octavian and guiding him into manhood. I don't know if that is what they were definitely going for with that name, but the fact that it's the name of the episode as well makes me think that they, they have laid some importance upon her role. That may be what lies behind it, the fact that this name is associated with with counsel, with guidance. A lot of the kings have a bad reputation. Even Romulus is supposed to be kind of violent and divisive, mm. but Numa has a, a really good reputation. And certainly when Octavian becomes Augustus, when he becomes the first emperor, he would not have minded being aligned with Numa. Nobody would mind being having that parallel made. Maybe that's why he chose her in particular. Yeah, that's not the way the episode shows it, is it? He just panics when you get to the boys. Yeah, yeah. And we get a slight bit of her backstory. She gets a couple of lines, essentially saying that her family was killed and she was taken. She doesn't know where she's from. Okay, turn around. Yep. I was slightly confused by that because she has an accent that suggests that she's foreign. Mm. Whatever foreign means in this context, apparently having a cut-class English accent makes you Roman. And yet, if her family was wiped out early, I'm not sure why she wouldn't have the same accent as the brothel keeper. But uh, ma- details, details. Yeah. By the way, can I just say that the brothel keeper, played by Linda Barron... For anybody who watches British comedy in particular, she's kind of a stalwart of British comedy. She's a brilliant actor, especially a brilliant comic actor. Okay. Yeah, we're going back a bit, but she's most famous, I think, for being in this sitcom called Open All Hours, which is about corner shop with Ronnie Barker. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It's a bit before my time, Rihanna. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, It is a bit before your time. It was nice to see her there, and she's very reassuring as this sort of down to earth you know, mercenary figure who puts Polo in his place. Let's change things slightly. And uh, before we talk about the position that Mark Antony is kind of put in, shall we talk about what is going on off screen? As in Caesar is over in Greece chasing Pompey? Well, but he's not though. So much going on off screen. He'll get there eventually, you're quite right. Mm. But what the series decides not to deal with, um, and we can think about why, is that Caesar initially, uh, we're told in all of our sources, including him, that he decides not to go east to follow Pompey. Uh, And that's because he's worried about not having enough ships, not having enough troops. It's quite late in the year. And he's also really worried about what's happening in the West. Pompey has a lot of support in the Spanish provinces, Mm. in Hispania. Um, And if things kick off in Hispania and they rebel or or kind of give their their strength towards Pompey, then he's worried that that will kind of have a ripple effect and Gaul will turn as well, or at least will rise up. And remember, he's just spent the best part of a decade creating new provinces in Gaul. He doesn't want to see that all go up in flames. So he actually goes west first to try and deal with Spain. He doesn't stay there very long and he leaves someone else in charge there. Mm. Then he thinks, well, what's going on in Gaul? The only major Gallic town not to come out and back him is Marseille, Massilia. 
And Massilia tries to sit on the fence and say, oh, we back Rome, you know, we don't want to take sides here, whoever's in charge in Rome. So he um, besieges Massilia, it's a nasty, nasty siege. And there are various naval battles associated with that. Yeah, right. We don't get any of that. So there's a lot going on. Mm. And then eventually he decides he has to turn east to Pompey. And he's not optimistic about this because he doesn't really have enough ships. And it's kind of disastrous initially. Um, He sends over, he goes over with some troops to the west coast of Greece. And he hasn't got enough ships, so he has to send them back. And there's a Pompeian at the coast who really shouldn't have let him go in the first place. He was posted there called Domitius, who was meant to stop him. But he was asleep on his post. And then he realizes he's got to do something. So he destroys the ships when they come back. Mm. So there's no ships to send troops over. So when Antony, I am getting to the episode eventually, when Antony is asked to send troops to Caesar, our sources tell us that he couldn't do that initially because he didn't have the ships to do it with. So that's the reason for the delay. So there is a reason for it. And over in Greece, Caesar doesn't really know this um, for a while, and he worries that Antony has turned. He worries he might have lost Antony's support. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of relevant to this episode because there is this suggestion that that might happen, that Antony might team up with Pompey. But it's a little different in our sources, right? It's that Antony doesn't have the capacity to help him at that moment, rather than the suggestion that he really is thinking of joining the Pompeians. Yeah, yeah. So that's what lies behind all of that. Let me mention just one more thing. I realise I've been going on a while. No, good, yeah. Um, There is an initial battle over in, uh, it's not Greece exactly, it's in modern Albania, they're called the Battle of Dyrrhachium, which Caesar loses. All of that stuff that I've mentioned has to have happened before Caesar's letter. A letter in the series is received from Caesar where he says, the tide has turned, I'm now on the run from Pompey. Mm-hmm. All right, so that presumably is after the Battle of Dyrrhachium. And you know what I think the, the worst thing about missing that out is, and this is I'm saying this just for you, Matt, that Dio tells us that there are some fabulous omens before this battle, which Caesar <laughs> should have taken notice of. I'm and always a fan of a good omen. I made, I made a note of this. So Me and Dio looking out for the omens. <laughs> Me and Dio um, and Tiberius. There are, <laughs> <laughs> are thunderbolts as he lands, all right, which set fire to some things. So as he lands over on the Greek side. Yeah. Um, and then there are spiders and serpents suddenly appearing everywhere, like just this whole colony of spiders. Back in Rome... There is the appearance of wolves, owls, earthquakes, fire, and an eclipse. There's more than that, actually. Dio goes on and on and on, but I, I didn't want to read the whole list. It's brilliant. If you want the source, we don't often do sources here. It is Book 41, Chapter 14 okay. of Dio Cassius Roman History. It's a great description of what happens as Caesar lands and, and why he really should have taken note and maybe not engaged with Pompey at that particular point. I'd love to see a good eclipse in this show. They'd go nuts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's so hard for us to imagine, isn't it? Mm. But the effect on people who didn't have access to the information about what was going on, it must have been terrifying. Yeah. I mean, okay, so me from a kind of, you know... I, I know what HBO is aiming for. I can see why they'd leave all of that out because narratively it's a mess. It is a mess. You would not try and put that in a drama that is trying to be coherent. And I can see why you keep the action with 
just a few characters in Rome while elsewhere Caesar and Pompey sort their shit out a bit. Can I say yeah. that? Does that make sense? Yeah. I, 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 I mean, from you reading Dio perspective, saying, so, so, you know, all of this is important and needs to be in there. But at the same time, Octavian needs to lose his virginity perspective, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and also, I suppose, just from a practical point of view, the cost of the battles might have been... This is something you do in theatre a lot, isn't it? You, yes. You have somebody come and announce an outcome of a battle because you can't you can't possibly show that on stage. You have on, one guy on running in, covered in blood, going, <laughs> <laughs> massive battle, Pompey, <laughs> Caesar. <laughs> oh, you've redecorated. Yeah, I really like what you've done here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's that kind of thing. <laughs> I guess uh, this is a, a selfish thing. I just miss Caesar. Yes. And I, I think I would have liked to see his reaction to being defeated because it doesn't happen that often. Mm. All right. And this is not just Caesar's spin. If you read the Gallic Wars, he doesn't lose that much. And even if you read other people's accounts. So I think this would have been a shock to him. Is this a spoiler? You can leave it out if it's a spoiler, Matt. Caesar will win this war eventually. When we sort of skate over that history, say with my first years, we have five minutes to talk about the Civil War and Caesar wins. But actually at the beginning, he probably thought he was going to lose. And back in Rome, we're told, other people thought that too. And they started kind of thinking, oh, well, maybe I'll favour Pompey at this point. They just assumed it was over for Caesar. I don't remember... I literally don't remember, but I'm very excited to see what they do in Pompey, with Pompey in the next episode. So I hope anyone who doesn't know is excited with me because it could be very, very dramatic. So I'm hoping for that. It's good. It's good. Anyway, uh, let's now just quickly go over uh, Mark Antony's quandary, which I feel was entirely fictionalised for this episode. The do I go or do I have an opportunity here to kind of make Rome mine almost and and you've you've also got Atia pitching that to him going you've got an opportunity here why do you want to go and chase Caesar and help him out so off you go what did you think of all of this just just explain it I mean people who are watching the series along with us I'm sure have seen it but that it's it's basically Pompey trying to persuade him to come over to his side I I think he independently kind of had the thought as well I I feel Mm. like you could see it in his mind going, you know, what real benefit is there for me at this point to chase Caesar when I've been left in charge of Rome and I could just sit here and, you know. Yeah, you see, not to analyse the series you wanted rather than the series you've got. Yeah, okay. I think if if we'd heard that Caesar, well, I guess we've heard that he's on the run. So maybe that's why Antony's taking stock Mm. and thinking, well, am I backing a losing horse here? But he's actually lost a battle. It's a big deal. Anyway, yeah, I I think that Antony's dilemma here is, in a way, we could read it as uh, representative of what is going on for a lot of of the people of Rome, let alone the power brokers. Mm -hmm. You know, are we backing the wrong side here? Should we take stock and change sides? There is not always throughout Antony's life the suggestion that he's 100% behind Caesar. Um, We'll find that particularly towards the end of Caesar's life. But at this point, our sources don't seem to suggest that he is in doubt. All right. So as I say, it's a practical reason that he can't help him at the moment, not Antony wondering whether he can actually be the the winner out of all this. And, and I think that in the series comes particularly out of when Artie is trying to push him into 
you know, I could marry you and you could be the first man in Rome. Yeah. Why don't you go for that? Yeah. What, what are you doing bothering with Caesar? Let Pompey and Caesar neutralize each other and you can be the winner. Yeah, she gets a very brutal slap for that. Oh, she does. Did not like that. Neither did the slave no. either. She was very quick with the knife. I quite like that idea. We've seen the slaves as very much backgroundy characters. Mm. Or in, for example, Artie and Antony are having sex and there's just a slave there. It's like they don't exist, isn't mm-hmm. it? But, of course, if you're a household slave, your duty is meant to be. One of your duties is to protect your master or mistress, and that's what that slave's up for. That's what they're meant to do, which is not to say that they always would. I mean, they... You no, know, I kind of think it was a... No, the Romans didn't treat them like that. They were autonomous people, but this one is loyal, as it were. I, I kind of think it was a knife, a threat, and a message, but it wouldn't have been an action. And Mark Antony kind of knew that, but yeah. Anyway, (laughs) it it checked him a bit, a little, I think. (laughs) Also, we should probably make note, but maybe not hugely wage into the very weird and I kind of had to watch it through closed eyes with my hands over my face. The the women, mostly naked, fighting with real swords, being cheered on by Mark Antony, and then him going over and licking the wound, and it was just, yeah... Of course, it's building Antony's character, which they're largely taking, I think, Cicero's view of. Not that Cicero describes this scene exactly, but that he is kind of deviant, loose, mm. that he gives way to all of his impulses, that he's kind of uh, over-sexualized, bound to luxury. Um, and they're taking it a stage further to suggest that he has, that he is turned on by the kind of bloodlust involved in it, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. They're trying to give him an air of deviance in terms that would make sense to us. I mean, that aspect of his character, and I think that we can just call it a character in this show, is going to become more apparent in the second season. And I guess that you need to show it starting somewhere. And also the same ideas of independence and allegiance, I guess, that are coming up in this episode Otherwise, those sort of ideas in the second season for Mark Antony would come out of nowhere. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I liked the way that this episode... I mean, if they've decided to go with that Antony and Artie are having an affair, Mm. then the fact that their affair is uh, presumably effectively ended by their political choices. All right, she's trying to be devious and manipulative and to set herself up with someone she can see could be a winner he has decided to kind of stay with the old system and stay loyal to Caesar. That means that he kind of sees through her. Well, not that she... It is pretty obvious what what she's suggesting, but that their political decisions impact on the private life. Given that this is an episode that is so much about that private life, Mm. it does bring in those political decisions. Yeah, uh, he seemed to be so disgusted by what she was suggesting despite the fact that it's what he was already thinking of doing, that it pushed him in the direction of, you know, being completely loyal to Caesar and essentially chasing him to Greece at this point at the end of the episode. Yeah, and I guess you could do armchair psychology on that. (laughs) The fact that she is so devious about it makes him realise that what he was thinking of was very devious. Yes, yes. Badly played by Artia. All right, so now we should... Uh, take a a brief segue and uh, we've got an interview with the director of this episode Alan Poole. You know I was in on the ground floor with Rome. I was there at the very beginning. I at the time was producing Six Feet Under for HBO for 
for Chris Albrecht and Carolyn Strauss at HBO. And Bruno Heller had this great idea for the show and they had, were trying to figure out how to make it because it was obviously going to be an expensive show. And so they asked me if I would help set it up. So uh, in the summer of 2003, I think it is, after season three of Six Feet Under, I came over to Rome and I did a, a little bit of a recce with Marco Valerio Puccini, who became our um, Italian producer, mm. uh, and some of the folks from HBO. But it, I did, actually, I did two stops on that tour. I did Rome and also London, because there were two schools of thought, and they were trying to figure out whether to shoot the show in, in Rome or in London, because there weren't going to be a lot of practical locations in any event. You can't go shoot in ruins. Mm. Um, so since it was going to be a build, and, and we know London has great, huge stages, so I was doing a kind of a feasibility study for London versus Rome. And in the end, we came down to Rome because, number one, we could get Cinecitta, and Cinecitta was, is a studio that has so much resonance of the romance of film that we were all besotted with it and felt that the somehow the act of shooting at Cinecitta would, you know, the, the osmosis theory of production that somehow <laughs> some of the real Italianness would seep into the film. Uh, and I think we just really wanted to make it work in Italy. So that was that decision was made on the first trip. And then we set about budgeting. There was a number that uh, was budgeted for the first 12 episodes um, that we didn't know at the time, but it was woefully inadequate. It was more money than had ever been budgeted up front for a series before, but it still turned out to be not enough. I sat in a room with Chris Albrecht and a number of other executives, and we made the decision to go ahead because unlike with most shows and most HBO shows in particular at that time, you couldn't make a pilot. Mm. You know, Sopranos made a pilot, Six Feet Under made a pilot. You couldn't make a pilot for Rome because you had to build all the sets anyway, yeah, even just yeah. to do episode one. Mm. So uh, it, it was completely not economically viable to make a pilot. So we had to like take a deep breath and commit to a big chunk of money and go straight to series. Yeah, right. And we did, and I went, I went back in the summer of 2004 to, to help set it up. They had actually asked me to quit Six Feet Under and come over and set the show up and be the producer on the show. And I declined because I was so deeply involved with Alan Ball and Six Feet Under and I needed to see it through. I would have loved to have gone to Rome, but we had one more season left. And so I stayed and I said, but I'd be happy to come back and direct. And that's, that's how that happened. But in the interim between that and, and when I showed up to direct Egeria, there were some rocky times. They, you know, they started shooting the first three episodes, cross-boarded as one big episode, and uh, they shut down midway through. There was some unhappiness with the style of the show. I think they just plunged in too precipitously. They also, I think, were learning that the budget was inadequate and that by trying to stay on budget, they were really shortchanging the show in ways that did not allow it to breathe. And there were some creative decisions that had been made that they weren't crazy about, all of which is why you make a pilot. You make a pilot so you can understand your mistakes and then adjust them and correct them. Mm. And these are all the things you would have learned if you had normally made a pilot. So they shut down and then they ran into um, torrential rains that went on for some time and were just shut down for uh, at least a week at a time. And so they just pulled the plug temporarily and took a couple of months to reconfigure the show. They brought in Frank Dolger as a, a new producer who went on to be the main producer on Game of Thrones. So the first three directors up uh, after the shutdown were uh, Julian and Alan Coulter and myself. So yes. they brought us all in at the same time because we were now going to reinvent the wheel. And 
in reinventing this world and trying to address the concerns of HBO, it was better that we all be able to work together as a, as a team. We wanted it to feel real and feel like Rome and be incredibly historically authentic, but that didn't mean it should be drab. And there was a, almost a kind of a lack of color in the first iteration of it. It's just like when you look at Greek statuary and it looks so beautiful and pristine and white, but you know that when it was created, it was painted. Yes. Um, you know, the Parthenon was painted. So we were trying to bring back that sense of color to the show. And it was a, it was very much a joint effort and it was really collegial. It was nice to be there as part of a team that was going off into uncharted waters. So how did you draw the Egerius straw then, if I can put it that way? Um, I don't think I was given a choice. I think I was asked if I would <laughs> do that one and the timing worked and I jumped at the chance. Yeah. And I love, I mean, I love the script, but I feel like I had already come on board to direct before I read it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's fair enough. One interesting thing that I found about Egeria, though, is that uh, Rome is very compressed timelines. They're trying to fit a lot into an episode to, to move the story along and get to the next episode. But Egeria, more so than any other episode before it, I think, seemed like the series taking a bit of a deep breath. At the end of the episode, it moves it away from Rome. But I also found it to be a lot quieter, as in you only dealt with a handful of characters. I saw Egeria being very much about uh, Varinus and his household and Mark Antony and a bit about Octavian. Uh... Atia's household, I think. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. As I say, I didn't select the episode, but I, one of the reasons that I love doing it so much is that it was about relationships. And that's, that's what I love, to be able to work in depth with performers in terms of fleshing out the relationships and the subtext in scenes and that was such a cast of thoroughbreds, such a great UK cast, and a number of them had kind of already been idols of mine before I even started. So mm. uh, the chance to be able to get in and essentially do scene work with them was something I really relished. And because the and also, you you know, UK actors have a slightly different way of working than American actors. American actors, I mean, I'm being wildly simplistic, but uh, American actors are very method and they want to know, you know, what was my backstory and what was I doing five minutes before the scene and what did my father do for a living? Um, and whereas in UK, they will summon the same amount of incredible depth of emotion, but it's much more, okay, uh, what do you want me to do and how do you want me to do it? It's a mm. more classical training. And it was my first experience directing a, a British cast and it was, um, it was extraordinarily pleasurable. Yeah, yeah. One of the actors that you got the most out of, I think, in this is that it's the first episode where we really see James Purefoy kind of open up and be really Mark Antony. He's just amazing in this episode, and I both hate him and love him at the same time, which is, I think, what you want out of Mark Antony. So uh, is that the impression that you got for him? How were you trying to, to direct him in this episode? Well, for one thing, he had meatier scenes to do in this episode. But mm. for me, it was like uh, Purefoy is tough. He has a lot of opinions and he's uh, maybe a little more guarded than some of them. But when you can really get into the place where you're collaborating with him, he's an extraordinary actor. So I'm, I'm glad you saw, I was very happy with the results for him. Also, I had a fair amount of work between Anthony and Atia. They had a lot of good scenes together in this. There was a fair few scenes where you just had like two characters you're trying to draw a lot from them and a lot of low light in this episode actually as well. And um, <laughs> you, you essentially had, I think, three different sexual encounters in this episode, which is a lot even for Rome. 
but they all seem very different in their tone. Can you tell me a bit about that process and, and, and what you were trying to get there? Is that a laugh for Rome? It's up there. <laughs> I, always think, I always think of the show as not pulling punches. But I think, it doesn't, that, um, yeah. I think that I don't care about explicitness, but I care about the honest rawness of the emotion. And I think it was very important to Bruno Heller as well that uh, we make sure that we know these characters are flesh and blood with a big accent on the flesh. We see mm-hmm. a fair amount of blood, but uh, and to understand the passions. And so, you know, clearly with Anthony and Atia, it's such a strong, they have such a strong sexual relationship that there are feelings attached and neither one wants to acknowledge the feelings, but there are feelings there. And there's that, I believe there's that scene where she kind of intimates that she would betray Caesar and cast her lot with Anthony if he was willing to uh, make her his wife. And on the surface in the script, you could have read it as scheming, but it's obviously there's something deeper going on than just, you know, she's got her eye on the prize. There are feelings mm-hmm. involved. And so it was trying to get down to that place. And then there's a very different scene. The scene where Octavian has this first sexual experience in the in the brothel. Yeah. Um, I mean, it starts off kind of very funny. I think uh, Atia says, like, you're going to penetrate somebody or I'm going to burn all your books in the yard. Um, <laughs> a line that I remember <laughs> had a big reaction on set and he's so timid and then what happens in that scene there's a moment and and young uh, Max Perkis who played Octavian was so good because he was actually acting out a situation that he had never been in in life because mm. um, he was a, a kid basically and um, there's a moment where it turns and you get one of your first glimpses of what Augustus is going to be, what Octavian is going to turn into when he becomes kind of dispassionate and almost cruel towards uh, the prostitute. And to me, that was a, that scene was all about somebody who's just coming out of childhood, beginning to discover the power that is going to be available to him. Mm-hmm. And then the scene with uh, Varinus and Niobe was, I, I guess, the only one of the three where I kind of sensed real emotion and affection i guess is a yeah good way to put it yeah i mean that's i mean that yeah that was i mean i feel like it was actually less work for me because the groundwork had been laid in the script Mm. um you'd seen these two wanting to come back together and so their coming back together was it was the fruition of something that i felt like had been set up already so there wasn't a big hill to climb kevin and indira are such lovely performers and they really loved each other so it was actually the easy, it was the least awkward moment to stage. It was, um, <laughs> am I not allowed to say any more Hollywood gossip or like? No, please, Hollywood gossip. Hollywood, you, you can clearly really remember Hollywood something gossip. that you. <laughs> this is something I would not talk about, except that Kevin has talked about it in subsequent interviews. So therefore I feel licenses that, you know, Rome that summer was full of mosquitoes. There were the, these uh, new, very vicious mosquitoes called the tiger mosquitoes they called them that had come around and it was so severe that actually in the city of rome that summer it became a crime to let stagnant water sit around if you saw any stagnant water on your neighbor's property you were supposed to call the cops and turn them in because they were trying to tamp down on the breeding of these vicious mosquitoes so uh, when we were going to do that scene and kevin had to be uh naked from the rear and he had two big mosquito bites on his butt and um, he really didn't want to do it. And we covered them with makeup and we really textured the lighting. And I assured him that nobody would notice them. And, and in fact, I mean, 
they don't stick out. You didn't notice that he had big mosquito well, bites on his butt. I've, I've got to go and watch it in HD now, I think. <laughs> See, but now you're going to look for it. But, but when, when Kevin watched it, and that's all he was looking for, and he saw the bites, and then he got upset at me. I might get a couple of odd questions from my wife if I go looking too closely at that scene. <laughs> um, but no, and, and by the way, Kevin is lovely, and we had a great relationship, but that was the, the, the funny story about the mosquitoes. But it's interesting, you mentioned about low light, scenes. I had the great pleasure on that episode of working with Marco Pontecorvo as my director of photography. And Marco is a genius. Mm. You know, his his father was uh, Gilles Pontecorvo, who uh, directed The Battle of Algiers, one of the greatest political films of all time. And Marco was a genius uh, cinematographer. And he very much wanted to make things feel like they were being lit by uh, the way they were then, lit by candlelight. Things were not clear in the dark. Mm. Um, and he was extremely particular about, like, he would get, like, a, a little flame bar, like a little, you know, five-fingered metal thing that give off little flames to yeah. create light. And then he would run around the camera and get down on the floor and put it at right the, the exact right place where it was casting the right shadow on the actor at the right time so during the flickering. shot. So you get a flickering. Yeah, but it wow. had to be exactly the right flickering. Yeah. Um, so all of that was, was very in, intentional both for effect and for authenticity. Yeah, wow. That didn't occur to me. So these are the things that I'm going to have to look out for in the future. So, <laughs> uh, the other thing that I wanted to ask you about this episode... Oh, damn, there was there was some scene in it's not. It's not about the penis? You didn't want to ask about the penis? That's what everybody talks oh, about. Oh, who, whose penis in this one? It's at the end of this episode where, where Atia <laughs> is giving the gift <laughs> to Servilia. <laughs> well, you blocked um, that out, did you? If you want to talk about it, go. <laughs> those were those were actually the Monday morning water cooler headlines in the states when the show aired was all about that because the scene is near the end of the episode as well. And Atia has that great line where she says, um, "What a large penis is always welcome." <laughs> a large penis. <laughs> to tell you the truth, I was more impressed by the fact that she got ice to Rome. It was the second part of the gift that impressed me more, if I can put it that way. But I think I think also with Rome, I'm just starting to get a bit of penis blindness, if that makes sense. So no, that completely makes sense. And you've you've got your uh, you've got your eye on what matters. So um, <laughs> it was just that was perversely that was the biggest casting challenge of the episode. Right. So I imagine was there a lineup? Was there? <laughs> it was hard because uh, it was very specifically written in the script as yeah. to you know uh endowment it just took a long time to find somebody but yeah um, it, well, we did we found uh, uh silvio was his name the more impressive casting in this episode that i really liked was simon callow uh who appeared at the start of the episode as the prospective I mean, consul simon and suzanne Burtish was in that scene as well and she's also uh, these are extraordinary British stage actors, and that's mm. why, I mean, Simon Callow is one of the people that I was kind of starstruck by. You know, he's really? not a household name, but I had seen him on stage and his work, and so to be with Simon Callow and Suzanne Burtish, and of course, Lindsay Duncan, whom I have always been a huge fan of, actors who are, you know, who do extraordinary work on the British stage all the time, and so, and I, I come from theater, I have a great bias towards theater actors. So it was almost humbling to be able to work with them when they were playing relatively minor roles. All right, so thanks very much to Alan Poole for that interview. Uh, he was in quarantine at the time in Tokyo preparing to shoot a new series called Tokyo Vice for HBO Max. 
So let's talk about the end of this episode. So the conclusion of this has a lot of different things happening. Kind of a, a, a bunch of forebodings. Okay, so is, do you think it's foreboding that Octavia gives that very unusual gift to Servilia at her mother's command? Is that what you're referring to? That's one foreboding, yes. When you said that you were uh, couldn't really look, I thought you were referring to this scene <laughs> with the slave that gets sent oh, to Servilia. Look, you know, <laughs> I was more put off by the violence than I was by the nudity. Um, Servilia seems to have more affection for Octavia than Octavia's own mother does. When you think about the fact that Artia has had Octavia's husband bumped off. Yeah, but I think Servilia also is playing the long game with this. We've seen her do curses. She really wants to get at Artia. She sees Octavia as a means of doing that. I think you're right to be suspicious. Yes. Also, I think you've watched the series more recently than I have. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like the fact that she is sent ice as well as the... I liked the um, ice too. The, that, that'd be quite an expensive the, gift. The slave and the... Very. I mean, it's super luxury. Yeah. There's no means of refrigeration even. So, that, you know, you've got to get it down from a place where there is ice, that, where there is snow and ice. That's Alps, you know, that's 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 all there. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I, w- I was impressed by that. I was more impressed with that than I was with the impressive slave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they, they would be less hard to come by. <laughs> Why are we giving gifts to Sevilla? Well, the old crow stands in well with Cato and the rest. When Caesar and his dog Antony are defeated... If they are defeated. When they are defeated, I'll need her goodwill. And this will buy it, you think? I don't see why not. Large penis is always welcome. I think it's not enough. Octavian is um, sent for his own safety off to Mediolanum, which is northern Italy, Milan. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm, yeah, hmm. not really. We don't know. Okay. We don't know if he was sent away anywhere. It's a convenient um, thing for him to do for a few episodes. Uh, essentially, yeah. I thought that this might have been one of the points where he ages up, but it's not. So, but yeah, off he goes, Milan. He's got to have something to do in his gap year while we're now worried about Caesar <laughs> and Pompey for the next few episodes, maybe. So mm-hmm. off he goes. Mark Antony and the 13th go to Greece, which takes Varinus away from his family, which we haven't talked about mm. hugely this episode, but, you know, they're now in a happier place. Very good. They're carrying around a standard with a stork on it, which I found interesting. They didn't just go for an eagle. Did you notice that? Legions didn't Uh, always have an eagle standard, but that's an interesting one to have. No. Yeah, and the symbol of the 13th Legion seems to have been a lion. They've decided not to go with that. The stork is very elegant. Mm. It looks great. Maybe we can come back to it and think about whether there's any relevance to that particular animal for this legion or maybe they just like the appearance of it well, I, I found a reference to the third legion italica carrying a stork standard but they're much much later than this mm. time period i suspect it's aesthetic mm. which is fine it does look good and uh and the ship sinks that they're on yeah which is a bad omen <laughs> certainly <laughs> thunder and um storms uh, look dio and, and i are very uh, happy <laughs> Yes, bad omen and also highly dangerous. And, of course, a cliffhanger for Mm. us watching the series. I suppose in the back of our minds is the fact that these main characters cannot disappear, so they at least must survive somehow. Mm. Uh, But it was late in the year to be sailing, so that is quite accurate, which is why Caesar was not keen on doing it initially. All of this is kind of against his better instincts that it's been happening. Mm. 
And basically, the Romans tended to avoid sailing if they could from about October to April. Okay. Because it ain't good in the Mediterranean. They're always scared of it, but that time of year, just don't do it. Well, uh, that is going to prove to be the case for Pullo and Varinus. But essentially, it's, it's putting everyone where they need to be very quickly in their places for the next episode. So, yeah. Um, I'm very excited for the next episode. Yeah, looking forward to seeing Caesar again. I'm looking forward to look, seeing Caesar, but also uh, to things culminating in the Civil War. I'm also looking forward to seeing Pompey again. Mm. I miss both of them. And I know I shouldn't be pegging too much on them because they're not the younger generation and they won't be around forever. But there's some exciting times to come. You've been listening to Raising Standards, an occasional rewatch podcast for HBO's Rome with Rhiannon Evans and Matt Smith. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Please leave a review. They are always very appreciated. You can like Raising Standards on the Emperors of Rome Facebook page, and you can follow us all on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. Alan Poole is at a pool one I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. That's it today for Raising Standards, so until the next episode, I'm Matt Smith. A large penis is always welcome, and thanks for listening. <laughs>